We're in the book of James in a series called Faith Works. And that theme is not uh, particular to James. In fact, Paul in the book of Ephesians writes these words in chapter 2. He says, For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that nobody can boast. He goes on in the next verse to say this. He says, for we are God's workmanship. The word in Greek is poema, and it means you're a masterpiece. You've been handcrafted by the maker of all things. He says, we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus to do good works which God prepared in advance beforehand that we should walk in them. So in the power of the Spirit, the born-again believer is called to do what is right, to do good works, not to be saved, but because we are saved. And so we arrive at the conclusion uh, that Scripture clearly tells us faith without works is dead. It's not a saving faith. Now, James as a book is sometimes taken out of context in an attempt to create a works-based system of righteousness. I've seen people do this, but it's contrary. To do that is actually contrary to, to the bulk of the rest of Scripture. And that's why we took the time last fall to study through the book of Galatians together before we got to James so that the basis of our salvation is firmly rooted and established in our hearts and minds as being grace. It's grace, not works. And so James is not saying that our works make us righteous before God, but that real saving faith is demonstrated by our good works. Works are not the cause of salvation. Works are the evidence of salvation. And so faith in Christ uh, is always going to result in a changed life. It's always going to result in good works. The person who claims to be a Christian, but who lives in willful disobedience, whose life reflects no change, nothing of the heart of God for humanity, uh, is it's a dead faith. It's a dead faith. And so Paul says the same thing again. I'll give you another cross reference here as we, as we set this up this morning. 1 Corinthians 6, uh, verses 9 to 20. Paul writes to the Corinthian church and he says this. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. That is to say, you can be deceived, so be on your guard. Don't be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, the greedy, the drunkards, the revilers, the swindlers, will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Paul goes on and he quotes a common phrase that was used in Corinth. They were very fond of this phrase. All things are lawful for me. So so what he's saying is, you guys like to say, all things are lawful for me. And then Paul says, yes, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be dominated by anything. Food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food, and yet God will destroy both one and the other. The body's not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. And God raised the Lord Jesus and will also raise us up by his power. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. 
Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For as it is written, the two become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. So flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but sexual sexual immorality, a person sins against their own body. Or do you not know that the body is the temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, Paul says, by the Spirit. You were bought with a price, so glorify God in your body. The way that we live reflects the change in our hearts. That's that's the you can just take all that I just read in First Corinthians and say that's the summary. The way that we live as followers of Christ should reflect a changed heart by the power of the Spirit. And so also James is just contrasting two different types of faith. There's true faith that saves, and there's a false faith that is dead. And so many profess to be Christians, but we have to take a look at the life and, and the priorities and, and, and just evaluate, right? We start with us. I don't start with you. I start with me. And we have to evaluate whether we're bearing fruit. Jesus said, so to this point, it's like, well, I could dismiss Paul. But okay, Jesus said in Matthew 7, by your fruit, you will know them. Do people pick grapes from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? Just so, every good tree bears good fruit, and a rotten tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot bear bad fruit, and a rotten tree cannot bear good fruit. Every tree that doesn't bear good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. So by your fruits you will know them. Not everybody who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter into the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me, I think this is probably the most terrifying verse in the Bible. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? Did we not cast out demons in your name? Did we not do mighty deeds in your name? And then I will declare to them solemnly, I don't know you. I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of evil. You see, the message of Jesus is the same as the message of James. What saves us is the Holy Spirit regenerating our hearts, and that regeneration will invariably be seen in a life of faith, ongoing, manifested in obedience to Jesus Christ. Our words... What we say clarifies our deeds, and our deeds verify our words. In other words, faith works. Clever title for a series. We should use it sometime. So let's read the text this morning, James chapter 2, verses 1 to 13. James says, My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly, and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in, and you pay attention to the one who wears fine clothing and say, you you sit here in a good place, while you say to the poor man, go stand over there, or you can sit at my feet. Have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, My beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he's promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor man. 
Are not the riches of the one who oppresses you? Are not the rich the ones who oppress you and the ones who drag you into court? Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you were called? If you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You are doing well. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin. And you're convicted by the law as transgressors. Forever keeps the law, but fails in one point, has become guilty of all of it. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. If you do not commit adultery, but you murder, you've become a transgressor of the law. So speak and act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. For judgment is without mercy to the one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over uh, over judgment. Excuse me. Okay, let's go back. James 2, verse 1. My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. This is a rebuke. James is giving a rebuke of, uh, to, to these believing Jews who are in exile because they are showing favoritism within the body of Christ. They're, they're showing partiality. Uh, but you go all the way back to Proverbs. Proverbs is laden with admonitions on this topic. But Proverbs 22, 2, the rich and poor meet together. The Lord is the maker of them all. So even as far back as the wisdom literature in the Bible, God is saying, look, I made the rich, I made the poor. Well, why are you guys making some distinction as to the value of people based on their wealth. It's James's fear that snobbery has invaded the church rather than affirming the truth that all human beings from conception bear the image of our creator. We are made in the image of God. And we therefore are equal in value despite our, uh, our, our ability or our lack of ability to generate wealth. I just want you to know I'm never gonna be a rich dude. I cannot, I, I, can't, I can't balance the checkbook. Like details? I don't even know what details are. And I don't like them. I don't like them. I'm never going to be a wealthy guy. Some people in this room have been gifted with the ability to generate wealth. And it's just like, it's just easy for you. And some of us, not so much. And that's okay, because that's not the foundation of who we are. It's not our identity. Every human life has intrinsic value because it's made in the image of God. Just as an aside, this is why I'm so passionate about and committed to stopping the killing of the unborn. Because every human life is made in the image of God and therefore has intrinsic worth and value from the moment of conception. Look at verse 2. And so James is going to unpack this a little bit. He says, so, so let me just give you a scenario. There's a man wearing gold rings and fine clothes and he comes to your church and the poor man's in shabby clothes. He comes in also and you pay attention to the one wearing the nice clothes and you say, oh, come, come sit over here. Sit in this place of prominence. Come sit, come sit down here. But you say to the poor man, go stand in the corner. Right, you, you know, you, you think there's room on the floor here at my feet. Have you not made distinctions among yourselves? Have you not judged with evil thoughts and intentions? So James is giving an example to illustrate how they're showing partiality so that they can gain clarity on why it's so destructive to the body of Christ. 
is so destructive. He draws this picture of two men entering the assembly or worship service. One's well-dressed. His hands are covered with gold rings. This uh, was common for the wealthy in that day in, in the Roman Empire to cover their hands with gold rings, multiple rings on all fingers, except usually the middle finger. And I'm not sure why that is. I could guess if it was our culture why you'd want to leave the middle finger. Um, but... but yeah, maybe so. Um, but but this was the thing. They, they would even, um, it, if you really wanted to impress high society and you're going to some big event, you could actually rent gold rings to wear. It was, it was a big deal. Um, the ring thing was so out of control that Clement of Alexandria wrote, quote, that a Christian should wear only one ring, that he should wear it on his little finger. It ought to have a religious emblem like a dove or a fish or an anchor. And the justification for wearing is it wearing it is that it would be used as a seal. So if you were going to uh, seal a contract or sign your name to something, that would be the only purpose in wearing that ring. So don't get caught up in the bling ring thing. Um, so the, the picture here is a rich man elegantly dressed coming to church with all his bling and then comes a poor man dressed in tattered simple clothes. By the way, there's no uh, value or judgment placed on wearing nice clothing, being wealthy, being poor, what we wear. It's just making a distinction here. And, and, and the rich man's ushered to the special place with pomp and ceremony. The poor man's told to stand in the back or squat in the corner. You see, you see the problem At the foot of the cross of Jesus Christ, the ground is level. There's no, I'm better than you. All the distinctions, all the accomplishments, all the feats that we use to set men and women apart as better than one another mean absolutely nothing to Jesus. They just don't mean anything to him. I love, uh, we have a sister church up in um, Linden, and they've got a couple of former NFL players, and I love talking to those guys when I'm up there because they just don't, they don't want to be known. They're just like, I'm just, I'm here to worship Jesus. Like, don't, don't ask for my autograph. I love that. I love that about them. They're just like, I'm not somebody because, because I ran down a field with an animal skin. Like what, what? What sets me apart? I love it. So all the distinctions setting us apart from one another is better than one another. Just don't have any place in the church. And this was Paul's point in Galatians three. If you'll remember our study in Galatians, we read in chapter three. Uh, Paul says, "Now that faith has come, we're no longer under that guardian. For in Christ, you're all sons of God, children of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ." And then Paul says, "And so there's neither there's neither Jew nor Greek, there's neither slave nor free, male." Nor or female, but you're all one in Christ. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring and heirs according to the promise. And so Paul was dealing with uh, ethnic divides, class warfare, gender distinctions. James is dealing with wealth, but neither Paul nor James are eliminating those categories. They're not eliminating, um, I mean, we're still men and women. We're still different ethnicities. We still have varying levels of wealth and income uh, and, and buying power. But what, what Paul and James are saying is those are not our primary identities. We, we do not come into the room wearing that badge on our chest going, I'm a wealthy person. I'm a, I don't know, fill in the blank. 
That's not who we are when we are together as the body of Christ. We are followers of Jesus, children of God. That's our primary identity. But suffice it to say, God's word intends that the church be the one place. All those distinctions are set aside for the sake of unity. And so we're all great sinners in need of saving. We who are in Christ have all received grace upon grace. And so we don't stand before the Lord in our strength and in our merit and in our accomplishments. We don't, we don't come chest puffed out before the Lord and be like, oh man, Lord, I did some good things for you this week. Aren't you glad I'm here at church, Lord? He's like, no, your heart is wicked right now. Stop it. That's just ugly. That's ugly. We come in humility. We don't come on our merit. This is not about social rank. There's no prestige. There's no fame. There's no partiality that should divide the body of Christ from itself. How can we, how can we even begin to compare merit with one another when God says our attempts to work for salvation are like filthy rags before him? How can we elevate one person over another in the body of Christ because of earthly wealth when we're all paupers and beggars before the king of kings? How can we do that? It's so ridiculous. In God's sight, we are one body. We're one. So it goes on in verse five. He says, listen, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he's promised to those who love him? But you are dishonoring the poor man Are not the rich the ones who oppress you and drag you into court? Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you were called? So now James is shifting to unpack the results of giving preferential treatment. Their conduct is inconsistent. This is a problem for outsiders who are watching the church. They're looking to see what this thing's all about. And James is saying, your your conduct is inconsistent They're supposed to care for the poor, the orphans, and the widows. But when they're gathered for worship, they're going out of their way to give preferential treatment to the wealthy. And so James is telling him that doesn't make any sense. It doesn't make any sense. He's saying that it's the rich in that context who are oppressing the believers. In that day and in that place at that time, it was really common. So why would those in the church be giving them preferential treatment? They're the ones who are mistreating you. Why would you, why would you do that? And so in that society, the rich um, was oppressing the poor pretty regularly, and they practiced extortion uh, pretty regularly. So, so this idea of being dragged into court would almost certainly mean more debt, being levied uh, by the judge, some penalty, you being locked up for a, for a season, the result of being jailed, uh, being unable to work, and you're already in debt, and now the debt is worse because you've, you've been incarcerated for a time because you couldn't pay back a loan. And, and so the rich were, they were very happy in, the, in that culture to loan out their money, but it was always at a very high interest rate, and the term was very short. The amount of time that you had to pay it back was really, really quick. And so we're set, they were setting people up for failure because there was really no way that they could do that. And so uh, the, the rich were happy to loan out their money. And if a lender met a debtor on the street, there was actually a law at that time that um, they, could, they could seize that debtor by the collar of their robe, almost choking them, and literally drag them to the courts. If they just encountered them on the street and they owed them money and it hadn't been paid back, you just grab them and drag them into the court. And that's, that's exactly what James says, is they're dragging you to court. Why are you showing them preferential treatment? 
And so this is what the rich were doing to the poor in that context. They had no sympathy. They just wanted every penny that they could get. So listen, it is not wealth or riches that James is condemning. Please make that distinction. It's not wealth that he's condemning. It's the conduct of the wealthy who have no sympathy for the poor. That's what's being condemned. And then the preferential treatment of the church for those who are wealthy who are sinning in this way. Those are being condemned, not not wealth. So he goes on in verse 8 and 9. He says, if you really fulfill the royal law, according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing well. But if you show partiality, you're committing sin and you're convicted by the law as a transgressor. So what is this royal law? Well, Jesus said, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength and with all your mind and love your neighbor as yourself, right? He said, do unto others as you would have done unto you. This is the royal law. We call it the golden rule. At Emmaus Road, we we say it this way. Love God, love people, live generously. This is the royal law. And so James has been condemning those who would show favoritism to the rich because they're not obeying the royal law. He's anticipating their objection. He's addressing the nature of this royal law. One could easily say, right, the law tells me to love my neighbor as myself. So so shouldn't I honor the rich man when he comes in? Shouldn't I give him the seat of preference? And and the answer is yes. If, If your heart is really to love that person and to honor them as a brother in Christ and, and, and you're not motivated by their wealth or their recognition or their status as somebody who's above other people, or if you're, if you're not, if, if, you're, if you're motivated to gain something out of that by giving preferential treatment, then your heart is sinning. But if you're just loving them, that's a different thing, right? So not only are you not keeping the royal law when you show partiality, you're breaking it. James's point is that favoritism is a breach of God's royal law. And so verse 8 is a a commendation, like when you keep it, you're doing well. And then verse 9 is a condemnation, when you don't keep it, you're sinning. So love people like you you would love yourself, genuinely. But if, if if your game is to get something out of it, you're sinning against the Lord, right? This is not, by the way, this is not about salvation, saved versus unsaved. This is about being judged as the children of God in matters of obedience. Do you you guys know the distinction? Maybe I should pause here and just make that distinction about judgment. There are two two main judgments uh, at at the end of time, and one is the great white throne judgment of God, uh, and every person who has not put their faith in Jesus Christ will stand before God, and the books are opened, and they are judged according to their works because that's the means by which they tried to live, and and, and they will not enter into heaven. That's the great white throne judgment, saved versus unsaved. The judgment seat of Christ detailed in Revelation is a judgment for every believer in Jesus. And we're not being judged on whether or not we're saved. We're being judged on what kind of stewards we've been with God's resources. Have we been obedient? Have we been faithful? It's a judgment of rewards for us and and what rewards we receive in the presence of God and whether we, we obeyed or whether we were disobedient to him. 
And that's a different judgment. Does that, does that make sense? So I hope that clarifies just a little bit for you. If you want to talk more about that coffee this week, um, I'm all about coffee. So let me know. First uh, Corinthians three, Paul, uh, Paul, Paul kind of speaks to some of this. Maybe this will help you. He says, according to the grace of God that was given to me, like a skilled master builder, uh, I just went to the Lego movie when I read that. Sorry. I got to separate that. Like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation and someone else is building on it. He means the gospel. He means the the gospel and the church. Um, He says, let each one take care how he builds upon that foundation. Because Paul's given us most of the New Testament. That's the word is our foundation. And um, he says, for no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now, if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, and straw, each one's work will become manifest. It will show itself for what it is. So the, what you do, the quality of your work as a follower of Jesus will show itself for what it is. He says, verse 13, each one's work becomes manifest for that day, the day of judgment, when we stand before Jesus at the, at the judgment seat of Christ, will show it for what it, it'll be, it will be disclosed, it will be revealed by fire. And the fire will test what sort of work each person has done. If the work that has been built on the foundation of Jesus Christ survives, that person receives a reward. If it's work, if anyone's work is burned up, that person suffers loss, though he himself will be saved, but only is coming through the fire. Does that make sense? So there is a judgment for the Christian whereby the way that we've lived and what we've done in the name of Jesus will pass through the fire of judgment and will be shown for what it really is on that day. And it's not about salvation. It's about the works that we've done. And that's why we're studying through James. This is an important thing to God. We go back to James chapter 2, look at verse 10 and 11. Whoever keeps the whole law but in one point, fails in one point, becomes guilty of all of it. See, the law is an all or nothing deal. It's an all or nothing deal. For he who said, do not, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. If you do not commit adultery but you murder, you've become a transgressor of the law. So this is just a restating of the principle behind the royal law. The, the Christian, the follower of Jesus Christ, lives under the law of liberty. It's a law of liberty. And we'll be judged by the law of liberty. The, the law that guides us is not, it's no longer outside us. So this is the difference. The law of God, the word of God, is no longer out here trying to constrain us. It's in us. It's shaping our will. It's shaping our emotions. It's informing our decisions. And we seek to walk in truth and righteousness, not because of some external law out here trying to constrain us, but because the love of God has changed us from the inside out. And the Spirit has come to live inside of us. It's not the threat of punishment. It's the compelling power of God's grace and love. That's what drives our obedience. So, Paul, so, so James says here in verse 12, so speak and act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. For judgment is without mercy to the one who's shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Let me, let me unpack that for you. There's been a lot of misunderstanding uh, I've heard personally in 20 years of ministry about this verse. It's only those who show mercy will find mercy. I'll just chew on that for a second. No one 
who has refused to show mercy will find mercy. If you have shunned mercy for others, God will not be merciful to you. How many times does God rebuke his people corporately and individually who refuse to pardon, who refuse to forgive their own brothers, but then turn around and say, Lord, forgive me, pardon me. How many times does he rebuke those people in the Old Testament and New Testament? What does God say? Matthew 5, verse 7, Jesus said, blessed are the merciful for they shall what? Receive mercy. (laughs) Seems pretty clear. In the next chapter, Matthew 6, verse 14, if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your heavenly Father forgive you. We'll go one more chapter, Matthew 7, verses 1 and 2. My favorite verse taken out of context in America today. Judge not. Most people just stop there. It's like, that's, that's all I know. There's more. Judge not that you be not judged. For with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured unto you. You, you track it with this? It's not a prohibition on making judgments. God is warning us that whatever standard we use to judge other people, we're going to be under that same standard. And so if we're not merciful to people, but we're demanding mercy from God, God just goes, what are you talking about? Why would I give you mercy? You're not merciful. Scripture's clear that he who would find mercy must himself be merciful. And James takes it even further for in the end he says that mercy triumphs over judgment. So a couple of thoughts here as we wrap up this section of James. To show partiality, to show favoritism, demonstrates that we care more about the outward appearance than we do about the heart. That's really what we're communicating. And in 1 Samuel 16, the Lord does not see as a man sees, for the man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. And we need, we need to become more like Jesus. We don't need to be wrapped up and consumed with the outward appearance. I'm so, I'm so struck by this person and um, because they're, they do this for a living or because they have this thing or because, like, stop. God looks at the heart. He's not distracted by any of that stuff. And we're supposed to be becoming like the God we worship. So get past the external, get past it and get to the heart. We assume that the rich man is more important to God and more blessed by God and we put too much value on material riches because we misunderstand God's economy. To show partiality shows the ugly, selfish streak in us. And usually, honestly, if we're just really uh, raw with each other, we usually favor the rich man over the poor man because we believe we can get more from the rich man. He can do favors for us that the poor man can't. And ultimately, favoritism in this way is self-serving. It's selfish. You see, God has chosen the poor. What do I mean when I say that? What scriptures say, has not God chosen the poor of this world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom? We just read that in the text. 
It's easy for us to be partial towards the rich, but God is not partial towards the rich. In fact, his word says that riches can be an obstacle to the kingdom of God in Matthew 19. And there's a sense in which God specially blesses the poor of the world. He says they're chosen. They're chosen to be rich in faith because the poor of this world simply have more opportunities to trust God than the rich. It's just the reality. If you've got lots of wealth and you've got lots of stuff, you're not as, as, as apt in uh, taking the opportunity in those moments where you're reaching out to say, God, I, I don't know how I'm going to feed my family today. God, I don't know how we're... <laughs> I mean, the stories. Jen and I could tell you about the first 10 years of campus ministry and like cars breaking down all the time. God, how are we going to... We got two kids. Now we got a third kid on the way. We got one car and it's not running. What are we going to do? And God would, he would come through. He would do, he would do, say, provide a car, provide a mechanic. It's crazy. Opportunities to grow in our faith because we didn't have the resources to do it ourselves. The rich person may trust in the Lord, but the poor man's trust is at a more basic level, even for daily bread, just for shelter. There's a level of faith that's different. The poor are chosen in this sense, that the poor more readily respond to God in faith, having fewer obstacles to the kingdom. And church history demonstrates that conclusively, that on the whole, generally speaking, uh, more poor people have responded to the gospel than wealthy people down through the last 2,000 plus years. Now that's not to say that the rich don't or can't respond. It's just, it's just the reality. So... Let me just add a caveat here. So God has chosen the poor, but God never calls us to partiality against the rich. I want to make sure we hear that this morning, okay? He doesn't call us to any kind of partiality against the wealthy. And and again, Jen will tell you, she worked at a a, a financial planning firm when we were dating and about to get married, and they were handling clients who's um, a lot of of major league clients ball players and professional athletes whose net worth was well over a million dollars a year on income and these people were giving away 80% of their income to the kingdom and living on 20 or less there, there are wealthy people who love Jesus and, and give away most of what they have for the kingdom and you know what God does he entrusts them with more because they can be trusted it doesn't have a hold on them but this, this is not God only choosing the poor. Not all poor look to Jesus, and there are some wealthy people who love him earnestly. And I know many people in both categories, and you probably do too. But the rich versus poor debate, I mean, what we're, what we're not trying to do is turn the church into Occupy Wall Street. Like, you people are terrible. You have wealth. Like, that's not, that's not what we're doing. That's not what we're about. I mean, we talk about the, the 1%. Well... If you travel around the world, what you will find really quickly is that we are the 1%. We are in the top of wealth in the world. Now, we can talk about context and how much cost of living is in Western Washington and why it's weird. Like, I deal with uh, our Pakistani missionaries a lot, and uh, they get excited about what we can send them and, and our currency. Like, I have to be really careful because you can create a false economy uh, by sending too much American money into places like Pakistan. Uh, and it sets them up for failure, and it really screws things up economically. And so you have to be careful about how much we send. But, it, but they, they look at our lifestyle and go, wow, they are rich. And we're like, well, we're just trying to pay our 
property taxes here, you know? So there's context here. The Bible doesn't condemn wealth, and neither should we. But those among us who are wealthy do need to heed Scripture's warnings about the dangers of wealth. You know, you read through Hebrews 11 and that that hall of faith, uh, there are some really wealthy people on that list. Poverty is not noble, but neither nor is the pathway to righteousness. Poverty is not the pathway to righteousness. So I'll just say this and we'll wrap up. The born-again Jesus follower has the Spirit of God inside them to enable obedient living so that our faith works. And in this context, obedient living is not showing favoritism. It's not giving in to partiality. And when we choose people by what we see on the surface, we miss the mind and heart of God. We miss the heart of God. Remember, like Judas appeared to be much better leadership material than Peter early on. Let that be a life lesson for you. Do not judge by outward appearance. Who can, we can say that God has chosen the poor in the sense that when he added humanity to his deity and came to earth, Jesus chose a life of poverty. Someone once wrote, there's nothing that men dread more than poverty. Most men will break every one of the Ten Commandments rather than choose to be poor. And I think that's probably true for a lot of us. God's word intends that the church be the one place, the one place on earth where all these distinctions are set aside for the sake of unity, for the sake of oneness. There's no social rank. There's no prestige. There's no fame and no partiality that should divide the body of Christ from itself. We should never let that happen. We need to fight for that. How can we elevate one another over against each other within the body because of earthly wealth when we're all paupers before the king of kings? (laughs) Doesn't make any sense. To do so would be ridiculous. In God's sight, we're one body. And I want you to know how grateful I am for each one of you. Wealthy or poor. (laughs) I don't think there are a lot of wealthy people here. (laughs) And that's okay. this This is a beautiful ragtag, messy body. And it's exactly what God wants. And I love it. And I'm glad you're a part of it. And if you're one of those people who can generate wealth, God bless you. Operate in your gifts. And if you're not, God bless you. We're glad you're here. Glad you're here. Let's pray. God, we want to be good stewards of what you've entrusted to us. We want to cultivate faithfulness with our resources which you've entrusted to us. And we just, we recognize and we affirm that that's going to look different for every person in the room. We're all learning, we're all growing, we're all uh, maturing in those skill sets. God, we say to you this morning that we, we want as your people to cultivate generosity towards your kingdom with our time with the talents that you've given us, with our treasure, with our resources, and also with our touch, just with a listening ear, with uh, our affection and our love for one another. 
Would you keep us from the sin of partiality? Keep us far away from favoritism in the body of Christ. Let that that difference in us, in this body, that we love each other as brothers and sisters, and there's no division here, let that be evident in us. Let it be a draw for people in our community who are not yet saved, who are looking for something different, that they would see that we're not caught up in the way that the world thinks. We just love you and we love each other and we want to live generously. Let that draw their hearts to you. Use us in these days, Lord. We pray in Jesus' name.